Hello, what's up, what's up, everyone? Welcome to the One Inch Barrier. I am your host, Juan Carlos Ojano, and I hope you're all staying safe and staying healthy and staying at home. All right, so we've come at the midpoint of the season. It's so fast, but there's something exciting happening that's going to happen next week, so be sure to check that out. So it's all right, so for this episode, we are going to talk about the film that won Best Foreign Language Film at the 48th Academy Awards. That film is Der Uzala, co-written and directed by Akira Kurosawa. So this was Soviet Union's second win and fifth nomination. So for a quick summary, this is about um, uh, Captain Arsenyev, who is a leader at a group of surveyors and the forests of eastern Siberia. And in their journeys in the forest, they get to meet um, an aging hunter um, named Dersuzala, who agrees to guide them in the forest. And at first, uh, their colleagues take Dersu for granted because they think he's just an aging hunter. But then... Slowly, they realize that he is very skillful and is more capable than any one of them and that group. And that becomes the start of the friendship between Captain Arseniev and Dersu Uzala. All right, so that's a quick summary of this two and a half hour film. So our guest for this episode is from the Philippines. He is one of the filmmakers behind Speed, a finalist at the short film category at the 2019 Q Cinema International Film Festival that premiered in, yes, Quezon City, Philippines. Please welcome Alejo Barbaza. Hello. Hi. Why are you laughing? Oh my gosh. So, I guess I'm excited to talk to you about this, okay. these films in this year. Um, okay. Yeah, Wow. Wow, you know, for the information of our listeners, we've, we've, I don't know, we've kind of, we're in around us, we are, we are into film school at around the same time, and we took some classes together, but I think we really got to know each other more when we started working in an office, that's not actually an office. office, but a project, a project, somewhere. yeah, a named office slash project, <laughs> yeah, somewhere, Somewhere, yeah. So there, you know, a history of a quote unquote friendship. But anyway, I'm so happy to have you on because I think we, I've been trying to get you to be a guest since the second season, and things just worked out this season. I do. You don't remember, <laughs> but we're but we're good. <laughs> we're good. Um. All right. Regardless, I am excited to talk to you about this year in film because there's a lot. Um, but we're going to get started with Dersu Uzala. Um, you know, in film school, I think Akira, Akira Kurosawa is one of the, like, the must-sees. Um, have you seen any Kurosawa films before? And um, what is your reaction, initial reaction to this, Dersu Uzala? Either in comparison or just as a standalone film. When I watched the film, I could really feel that the scope of like the film is epic. Like 
in terms of the location, uh, like the story itself, like the Captain Asiniev venturing into the to the wild, and then also in terms of uh, technicality, like the cinematography, some of the shots, like I was I was surprised to see those kinds of shots for a 1974, 1975. So there, what I can think of, like it's like an epic two hour and a half film long, and it did, and it, um, it also did show Dersu. I wanted to say something about Dersu, but maybe you'll ask a question later, so I'll save it for later. Okay, um, yeah. This, you know, have you only seen three Kurosawa's for now? Even with three, this sticks out. Um, even just the the setup is very much apart from the Kurosawa that I have seen, because I know him in Japanese costume dramas. This is not it, and like, I will say that it's epic, but it also feels very focused on two characters so um i think the epicness of this film if if that's the right word feels grounded to a central human story yeah so it didn't feel like it didn't necessarily feel like this big production which it is but it really felt personal in a weird way um, because the film is very much focused on the two characters. One thing I will say is that um, at, in terms of filmmaking, the the precision in blocking that Kurosawa always has, it's so present here. He has these shots that don't necessarily move, or just like people talking, long takes. But the blocking is so precise that you get to see, like, what is happening. There, there, there are several layers of action in one scene. And you see that Kurosawa puts the camera in a stationary for us to observe what is happening in real time, the interactions that they have. Which is pretty dynamic, but I don't know if uh, you know in terms of like filmmaker to filmmaker. Wow, um, it's really difficult, I guess, to maintain dynamic relationship shifts in one shot for an extended time without it feeling dragging or pointless or lacking in energy and intention. With this film. I always feel I was in sure hands. And not just because I know that Kurosawa directed this. I, I mean, I am not. I don't have any attachment. But other than that, it feels so decided. It feels like there is this conscious guiding on how the scenes were mounted. And for that, I am thrilled for the most part. To see um, 
how interactions shift, how relationships change in one take. When you say when you said that about um, the dynamic, I, I remember the scene where they were eating fish. Then, like the mother was cooking fish, and then she was going to serve another round, but all of them, each one of them. Like they were down, they 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 all turned down the fish, right? So it's like, and then and, and the shot was static also, right? And sorry, when you said also about like, even though the film is is like an epic, but it's sort of like biased to the two characters, the captain and there's, but I think. But yeah, but sometimes it's too obvious, like only the two of them are talking, like the side characters, the the army men, they're just laughing or they're just there quiet in the background or singing a song. When I was watching the film, I I have this joke with my family, like if we're watching, a, for example, an action film, and then I would say to them, like if there's a, a tender moment between two characters, I would say to them, um, "Love story, palatoy. It's a love story." So I I thought of that. Like this seems like a love story between the captain and there's like when they reunited at the sec at the part two, <laughs> they give the awkward hug when they um captain captain and then when they yeah. Because I think that's the film understands it. It starts with the captain inquiring, "Where's the graveyard?" Because spoiler alert, there's who died. It's it, this is this is history, so you know he died. Um, but he was trying to look for the grave of his friend, and that's where we start the look. The that's the framing device. That's our way in the story, and. The film understands. That's why I love. That's what I love about this film, is that, art. This is this expansive. This is this expansive story about of the frontier, and exploring nature, and the fascinating and dangerous things that happen when humans interact in nature, but it's always about the friendship. It's, the beginning. And the way that friendship flourishes and separate and then come together. And then, you know, trying to make it work, their coexistence, but doesn't really work. Yeah, like you said, it's almost like a romance, but it's in a, it's, it's just, I think it's a story of love. But it's not romantic love. It's, it's a friendship kind of love. And there is present, it's almost as if the growth of love that they share for one another as friends, you see it in real time. That's why I was engaged in this epic because I know there is a story to grab onto. Because if this is just like great shots, beautiful shots, then I have nothing to anchor myself into. But I have the story of friendship and how this friendship wasn't, it wasn't forced upon. It was things clicking to one another. It's them gaining trust to one another. It's their codependence. At least, 
at least the captain is dependent on Dersu most of the time because Dersu has things managed. And um, I don't know. I liked it. I liked the friendship. I, I like how it focused on the friendship. Whereas to just a general broad epic that it could have been, but it's not. Did you feel like the film exoticized there soon even in Tamil. I don't think so I don't think so I've kind of talked about this in uh, the previous episode because that's about French uh, in black and white in color it's about French colonizers in Africa um, the, the natives aren't given much perspective but the way the film uses perspective to criticize the colonizers is brilliant with this one it's, 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 there's so comes in as this um, fascinating character that we don't really know much about. And we only get to know a little bit piece by piece, you know, as they become friends. And we know he is a person that thrives in the wilderness. You know, that's his turf. He doesn't fit in the city. It doesn't fit in the urban lifestyle. It tried to make it work. It didn't. But there are still unknowable things to him. And it's not because the film is not willing to explore that. I think the film is solid on its perspective of this is Captain Arsenio's story. And there is love in that perspective. It's not patronizing. It's not condescending. It's not as if, oh, I love this magical person literally came out of the forest and then suddenly saved us. This is, it's coming from a place of, I wish I knew him more. And it's being honest with that. And for that, I will take the lack of perspective that we have of Dersu. We only see Dersu in action. He, Dersu, Dersu likes to work. Dersu doesn't always open up that's where that's how they got to know each other through work and it's important it's vital because that's they're going to be their bond in the wilderness but the unknowable part of their zoo i think it's deliberate and i think it's done in a manner that is respectful of their zoo and not exoticizing but i i want to know other perspectives i mean what do you think of it and i for me, I want to know what others think of it because maybe for them, especially if they're um, Russian natives, there are Russian natives listening, I don't know. But if there is this feeling of contradiction, like I, I don't like his, his um, depiction, then that's understandable as well. I mean, what do you think of it? At the first half of the film, I thought it was going to be like that. Like they're, they're, they will exoticize there so a bit. But... When it was um, when part two came, and then when the scene came that he finally admitted or he started to realize that he's losing his sight, I like that scene because I thought at first they, they painted Dersu as like the skillful, he knows everything about the wild, he's like almost like a super superman. Then 
when we arrive at that scene where old age gets him, like I really like that moment because like, even a very good guy like Dersu, he's also human like everyone else. Like old age will uh, affect him, but it's also sad at the same time because him losing his sight in the wild, it's like it's very hard for him to accept that. And I think it was amplified when he stayed with the captain in his home. Like he doesn't belong in the town. He really belongs in the wild, but since he lost his eyesight, it's it was really hard for him. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I don't know what can you say about this, but um the in terms of like American kind of way of filmmaking, in terms of literature and storytelling, I guess it um plays around in the territory of the magical Negro, that stereotype of like, oh, the black person that just knows everything and we are in a story of a white person. I'm like, oh, I love with him. I love being with him because he knows exactly what to do with everything as if this magic person. And even Dersu's introduction is almost as if this magic that drops from um in the middle of the forest. Like, you uh, know, the first time they meet him, is like, he was a bear. They thought he yeah, was, a bear. was a bear. And it's a person named Dersu, Dersu who's like a gatherer. And actually, that's kind of like them taking him for granted because he is coming out of the wilderness and I'm like, who is he? Uh, you know, there's a. He was taken for granted by the team, by the group of surveyors. Um, but then the second half really confronts his existence. I think the first half. You know, it's the start of the friendship. They are in awe of him. But like you said, when he, when his frailty starts to catch up with him, uh, we get to see as if... Because I think even in Arsenev, Dersu is more of an idea as well. You know, here he is this um, hunter that I met at the forest. He's so amazing. He's so good. But... I think there's there comes a point in friendship like their Sue where they start to know each other more and I don't think they're sure if they actually like knowing each other more because it reveals weaknesses and um, vulnerabilities and that's not what bound them in their friendship. Because they were bound by the action, action, survivalist mode in the forest. I mean, they had a lot. They did a lot together in the forest. Um, there's who saved the captain when there was a blizzard at the lake, which was a captivating scene. Like, how do you do that? Um, amazing. Five stars. But the second half really shows. I don't know what, what do we think of humanity a person's humanity as this person's weakness like I think there's also um, a humanity in how Dersu confronts his weaknesses and how the captain responds to it and realizes that Dersu isn't always going to be the almost legendary character that he was in his mind that he is seeing Dersu also as a human being. He is no longer the can-do-it-all person 
which you know i love the first half more because there's this more cheerful vibe yeah. uh, it's more like you know this fascinating unknown. oh there's the unknown. You know, the unknown the fascinating unknown but in the second half it's more somber but it is really more of us confronting our relationship with the friendship that they have like how do we deal with these characters what how do we deal with their sue when when this um amazing hunter is no longer that amazing i mean he still is but in terms of his action the things that made us fascinated about him aside from his uh, lack of um a well-expounded backstory is how on point he is as a as a hunter when when his biggest strength that we hook on um he's losing it what do we do with that what do we do when they respond to it there's something really beautiful and bittersweet about that relationship that they have captain dersu and also us responding to their friendship and in part two, he's the one who needed the saving. Yeah. Oh. Oh. That scene. Oh. The tracking shots. Uh huh. Which one? I forgot. <laughs> in the river, when he was about to, when he was getting drifted by the river. At the raft. The raft. Yes. Sorry. Ah. Okay. Yeah. Again, like it's it's a sign that somewhere down the line, Dersu isn't just going to be. This person that saves everyone, you know, it's already being inferred. But you know, going back into some of the scenes that made us really fascinated with Dersu, I I really love the scene when they were trying to shoot the bottle, <laughs> and Dersu is like, you know what? Because there is this bottle that is hanging on a tree on a thread, and they will be like, let's shoot the bottle, and Dersu is like, don't shoot the bottle. By the way, he speaks. Yeah, he speaks um, broken, uh, yeah. r- broken Russian, <laughs> but it's it's so well translated in the subtitles. Like it's broken English. It's like don't break that. It's here in the forest is valuable, and they were like, oh, don't shoot it. Like I'm gonna do you something better. I'll shoot the thread, <laughs> and, he <did>. and he, <laughs> freaking shot the thread, and we were in awe. <gasps> and you know it's it's kind of like uh, of course it's funny because the victim of the joke are the people that took him for granted you know they're so there wasn't really proving himself necessarily I mean I think it's more him disproving that he can. the people that didn't believe him yes. if that makes sense but it's already a setup because we're in awe of their Sue. So later, when he misses his shot, it's heartbreaking. Because heartbreaking not only because uh, he didn't get to shoot it, but because we know how good he was. Yeah, how how good he is, how he thrives in the wilderness. You know, when when they parted together, they parted ways. Parted together <laughs> when they parted ways. He said. You don't have to give any, just give me bullets and gun. It would help me with my hunting. When his way of life and what he's good at is slowly being taken away from him, that's painful. And that shooting the bottle scene, as cute and as funny and as, you know, just 
it feels good to disprove this racist definitely um it's turned against us and people are like oh, ouch you know we are in that oh gosh this this is the start of something wrong right would you <laughs> it's know it's not gonna be good yeah would you know if uh the, the actor who portrayed their soul was he has he been an actor for a long time he has only acted in one film before but he is one of the founders of original theater in um, in Tuva uh, Russia so he has performed for a long time but this is just his second film you know he's an actor director singer collector of musical folklore composer and teacher just like me I'm just kidding um, I'm not that versatile but you know um, I love that they tr- they cast a person from that place from you know, I think in in the realm of Russian, I don't know, population, he is considered one of the natives or one of the ones living in the rural areas. And I love the authenticity that that brings. Um, because I know Kurosawa really wanted Toshiro Mifune for this role. But they decided to do it uh, with Maxim Munzuk, who played Dersu Uzala. And it was a wonderful casting choice. Yeah, he, he was. It 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 lends to more authenticity. And to know that Dersu Uzala is a real person. And uh, I'm taking a look at his photo now, then oh my god. Did he look similar? Was it the yes. casting choice? I mean, as a casting director. <laughs> wow. Um no, it's not just in the it's not just in the uh Call that it's not just in how it looks like. I mean, you're. I think we're luck. We're lucky in casting if the person that we cast for a role looks a lot, a lot in character. But first of all, Dersuzala um, is not really known for his like iconography, so it doesn't really matter that much. And second, I think it's the energy that one brings. I think with Dersu, uh, with Maxim Munzuk, you can see in his physicality. That you know, the, the old age is there, but the expertise is also there. And um, I, you know, I, I love how he portrayed that. There were some scenes that, like, like sometimes the captain would, in terms of acting, like the captain would be more. How can I say this? More focused acting, or like he, he's more into it versus like sometimes there's who could be so mechanical or maybe it's also part of his character maybe <laughs> maybe i wish i knew everything um i think that's how they complement because arsenyev is this uptight captain that in as much as he's a captain he needed some guiding let's be honest and there's is this person whose physicality makes you know informs us that he knows his ways in this terrain and you see how even in their most friendly moments there is still a barrier between the two because how of how different 
they are as people and how, you know, there are moments when even when you're very good friends with one person, I think your coexistence can only go so far. And once you start living together, it's not really working. Or like when you spend too much time with them, it's not really working as well. Um, why are you laughing? <laughs> you make it I'm sound like a like it's a really a love story. <laughs> like it's really a romance. I mean, oh yeah, go on. It, yeah, I I, 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 understand. Oh my gosh, the judgment! <laughs> why? Oh my gosh. Um. Yeah, I think um, the character of the captain is just a way in to see more of Dersu. And because we are a part, we are, but he's like a conduit to the audience. But we are also in awe when we, the same way that the captain witnesses Dersu, is when we see Dersu and we almost see it as if we're the captain, like, I'm in awe, but I really don't, I really don't know what to do. Get me out of here. So that um, he becomes as if this um, surrogated audience. Um, what do you think of that framing device, the narration of the captain? It's okay for me, like, since in the beginning, it's, it, he's the first character we, we get to know, like, he's looking for Dersu, so I think with that uh, narration or his perspective, it's like we also side with the captain, like, we're more with the captain versus Dersu, because we're not really, we're not good hunters or... The viewers would um, identify more with the captain versus their scene. I guess that works. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I'm also trying to imagine like um, a film where the the perspective is more with Dersu, but um, I feel like that's a different film. Um, this is a story, basically, of the captain. And it's not as if we needed a surrogate, but at the same time, I think it's the more honest approach to the story. When you admit that, all right, I really don't know this person, so I'm just going to tell the story in this perspective. And this is based on a novel by the captain himself, like Desu Uzala by a memoir. Desu Uzala by Vladimir, the captain, <laughs> Vladimir Arsenyev. So, I don't know. It's, it, I think it's just being honest that this is the perspective. I cannot do much about it. And um, I, don't, I don't know about the narration. I'm, I'm fine with it. I mean, I think worst case scenario, it's not necessary. I don't think it's distracting. Yeah. Yeah. So it's so, like either way it could work. Yeah, it, it works. Or maybe or even if it yeah. It's just a personal bias. Because for me I, mm -hmm. I don't really like narration. Hmm. Oh why is that? I mean it's just my personal bias, like I wouldn't put narration if if I make the film. Yeah. Why is that? Maybe because I don't like dialogue or Having to write dialogue. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, maybe I like. I like it to be. Um, 
diegetic. Mm-hmm. So narration is is all narration non diegetic. Would you say? Would you agree? I mean, it's. It depends. <laughs> I think diegetic is mostly used like in music, for example. But I, because in the world of the film, they're narrating, but we're, we don't hear yeah, it. So it's it's non diegetic music. Okay, I mean, I love writing dialogue, but I find it I I, I struggle with narration as well. I, I think there's got to be a certain skill <laughs> when you write um, narration. So we have the same. You have to, <laughs> yeah, you have to be very careful um, when you use narration because it's it it's a setup for failure. <laughs> it can be, yeah. Um, other things i i also like that the film isn't really i don't think it's i think it is not overly sentimental but it acknowledges that the friendship is the heart of the story if it makes sense it doesn't overly dramatize the relationship but it doesn't shy away when there are more emotional moments of these and i think that's refreshing in like in a um, male to male friendship like this one is to see you see their tenderness to one another without really um, without really putting too much emphasis to it because um, oh we're really sounding like this is a romance but their love language is through action, action. as a man oh that sounded wrong um, so, in action in like forest this still doesn't sound good Forest hunting survivalist action. <laughs> that still doesn't sound good, but um, you know what I mean. You know when they are, when they are helping each other and just being present in the moment, like trying to save one another from the blizzard, or guiding the right person here, or like provide pointing to the right direction. When there, when their Sue sees like a footprint, oh. and they're like. The bullshit. And it was like, no, I know these are the Chinese footprints. And for Dersu, even at the beginning of the friendship, I think he has genuine care for the group, especially to the captain. And I think that's their language of love. And we get to see it. And the film doesn't need to say no homo. Like it a, just it's yeah it's an action it's in action like when Dersu revealed to the family of the captain that he wants to go back to the town and remember that scene and it's static and then the captain leaves the room awaiting like what's gonna happen like is he going to throw a fit or and then when the captain does come back he gives him the right hook Mm-hmm. And also that scene when um when he was arrested <laughs> because he decided to cut a tree at the park. <laughs> like oh it's 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 like a cheese like a I, child. I, Lost yeah, in the it's it's really him not fitting. You know I remembered Room in two uh from 2015, the Brie Larson film, not the Tony Tommy Wiseau film. Uh, hi Mark. Uh, with 
in the use of like wide shots, we see how displaced Dersu is in the urban world. You know, when I think he's just looking at the fireplace in one scene, um, and they're all trying to live a family life quietly, you see how he doesn't fit there because he's really, he's really a person that does well outside in action. <laughs> saying a lot of inaction. Um, and also this scene, the scene where Dersu was playing with the captain's son. I, yeah, and the couple are just, yeah, outside listening. You know, I, I think it starts as this cute moment of them trying to eavesdrop on Dersu, but it stays for a bit long. And then we realize there is actually a sadness in that scene. Because now Dersu is telling things to Vladimir's son as if he's longing to get back. And, you know, that's how in a static shot, you get to reveal the intention of the filmmaker that this is not really going to work. Him being here in the urban lifestyle. Um, you know, that, that the patience... To see change in a scene, in a static shot, is it shows a lot of trust in the audience that we would follow. We would follow what's going to happen emotionally to these characters. And um, I also love the humor, especially in the first half. It's genuinely funny. Not because their Sue is the laughing stock, he really is not. But on the way these white surveyors are underestimating him and always proven to be wrong. But it's not painting, it's not winking to the audience that, you know, oh, this has got it. But it's really just a natural progression of like events in the wilderness. Um, I prefer the first half to the second half. Do you prefer <laughs> any of the halves? I'd go with the first half as well because the second half starts to be a bit sad when Dersu faces reality. But my favorite scene is in the second part. What's your favorite scene in the film? I think it's the blizzard. The blizzard. The scene at the blizzard is. I I don't know. It's again. It's a huge moment, but it's a character moment. You know, it wasn't characters just stuck in. In nature, being out of control, it reveals their character. And that's when the epic scope of the filmmaking works. Because it's not, grandstanding. It provides context, more context to the plot and to the characters. Um, there is this one scene when Dersu was having this meltdown. I think he dreams of seeing a tiger. Yeah, most like, uh, oh, it, spirits are out yeah. to get him. It felt bad to see him helpless. A character that we know was very much in control. And then we see him like that. It's it's the start of something not good. <laughs> um, but how that was acted. Again, static shots. It's 
static shot doesn't really move a lot but we just get to see how i don't know this how present the actors are and they tell a story within that frame like the camera doesn't have to move around just to provide the dramatic momentum to the story you see how the blocking and the execution of it and the actors just interacting provide that and I think that's a missing in a lot of films is when sometimes you don't have to move the camera for make it dramatic uh, during the first part it felt like I wasn't watching a film from the mm-hmm. 1970s not to not to not to trash in the films of the 70s <laughs> I was expecting like like uh, shitty cinematography or you know like whatever you have very slow yeah but but then like when the film showed itself to me like it's very epic but it's still a personal story between these two characters and the way it was shot as you were saying like it's really well and of course Akira Kurosawa was the one who directed it, so it makes sense to me. And it, it, it really deserves to be the winner. I jumped to the end. Wow. <laughs> I jumped. Um, I think it, it just reveals that Asian directors are excellent. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, not. Um, I really like this scene at the end um, when, again, there's who died. This is historical. This is already 2021. I think you can um, safely say that he's dead. Uh, but by the way, the actual Der Suzala um, died um, in 1908. Um, so, you know, I don't think it's a spoiler anymore that the person who's one out of the old dead is buried. Uh, but the scene where the captain visits the burial and there's a stick. There's a stick. At the side, you stick. and yes. <laughs> okay, calm down. And um, <laughs> what he's walking, <laughs> and then he decides to plant the stick, and that's the image that we end with. Yes, um, it's a small but really moving tribute to Dersu because we remember him with what he's good at, you know, in the hunting. We don't see him, but that vital um, tool that he has, you know, that stick, that he never really let go. And that's where we end the film. It's a powerful reminder of like, you know, it's like memorializing a person with what he's good at when he was still alive. So that makes the ending bittersweet. And not really a mournful one, which I think really works so well. What did you think about um, the instances that led to his death? The irony. Uh, How did he die? Oh, murdered. I, yeah, because um, when the captain arrived at the scene, he was asking questions like, "This was this was my friend. He was a hunter, and the the guy was he a military man." Mm. He said, "Oh, I, I didn't see any rifle with him." 
Yes. The 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 one who killed Dersu wanted his rifle. And that same rifle. And that rifle was given yeah. by the captain. The captain right? It's like a, a big irony that these two different people Dersu already can't live in the wild because he lost his eyesight and then the gift that his good friend gave him led to his death. Which makes it bittersweet because that was not the intention. Um, I mean, you know, that's. I think that's how life works. Not that your friends will give you gifts that will kill you, but <laughs> you know, when 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 you want to help, when you want to help someone or give something, and then it's not really, it doesn't really work <laughs> in the way that you wanted it to work because you wanted him to give the gift as to survive more, to thrive more. And then that becomes his end. One of the bittersweet things in life. And I think the film understands it. Like it's not it's not anyone's fault except the person who took the rifle. It's not the captain's fault that he gave the rifle. It's not Dersu that had the rifle. This is how life turns out and life I think life in general, I think if you're a normal human being is bittersweet. <laughs> it's a mixture of um, happiness and sadness, and sometimes there are moments that are really in between, as we saw in Inside Out. <laughs> a lot of those moments where it's like, I'm kind of happy, kind of sad, I don't know what I'm feeling right now. These moments, I, th- that's, I like that emotion. And I see in, when I see in film, not in my life, <laughs> when I see them in film, because... It understands the complexity of human emotion. And we end on that note. You know, with the film. So, I am... I'm really surprised how much I like this one. Uh, Dersu. Because... Because it's a story of friendship. It's a story of survival. And it's a story of... True friendship and not a payroll friendship. I'm just kidding. But <laughs> I I really like this. I mean, I love this one. I mean, I'm excited to go back more and see more Kurosawa as the time goes on. Um, do you have any other like favorite scenes or things you want to mention or want to ask me about this film? I was thinking um, like since he was paranoid about the Amba, the tiger... That was going to kill him, but at least the tiger did get him at the end. Because <laughs> we already know that he, like, like in the part two, like he's afraid of the, the tiger going to kill him. At least it wasn't the tiger that caused his death in the end. Oh, ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. I was thinking. I, I was waiting for a scene. Uh, when they shot that, I think it was two scenes. Like there, there was one scene that the tiger was close to them. Like I was just mm-hmm. imagining how how did they shoot that scene? Or maybe what he had in his dream was a metaphorical tiger. That some there's there's an element in the wilderness that would kill him, which kind of happened. Wait, um, I don't know if we talked about this before, but. It's not really about film, but about subtitles. Like, do you think when watching a film with subtitles, does it like 
had another element like would you would you say that it's more you're more focused to the film when you're watching a film with subtitles because of an, an additional stimulus or like you have to read and then i mean as a host of a podcast that just focuses on films that i have to watch yeah. with subtitles biased it's right. um <laughs> it's uh thank you it's it's something that you get used to and hopefully when you watch a film you get to watch a film that is that has good subtitles because that's not always the case um especially when you go to quote unquote unofficial places to watch films it's not the the officially sanctioned the sanctioned subtitles so to speak um it's not necessarily a make or break but i think it's just us as human beings we want to understand as much as possible what we can when when we when we try to understand in general and when we watch a film i mean i even watch subtitles even when i watch like english language films that's just how the way i go I always, even in Filipino films, I keep like subtitles. Like I don't know my own language because I only speak English now. Um, the thing is with subtitles, with with their su, it's important because we have to understand that his language is he has broken Rus- Russian, and that adds to the characterization of their su. Um. In this case, the subtitles are important. And, you know, there are films that can stand without subtitles. But I really want to understand what's going on. So I just just love subtitles. What is your relationship with subtitles, anyway? I mean, do you... For me, when I was watching the film... Yes! Wow, answering my question (laughs) with a question. (laughs) When I was watching the film, it's like sometimes I would read the subtitles in my mind. Like, I'm acting them out. Like, I... I'm the one giving life to the subtitles, so in a way, sometimes I do that. In a way, it's like engaging. There's more engagement when I do that. Sometimes just, I do it just because I'm I I miss acting. <laughs> I'm like say the lines <laughs> with the actor. <laughs> Any final thoughts with Derzuzala? Anyway, I like this. I mean, going into the film, wow. <laughs> going into the film, I thought it was going to be like some generic epic that's gonna exactly. exoticize this hunter. But when Dersu started losing his strength in the second half, like that really got me. Like I, I started to like the film, and up until it ended, like I don't know, it just it just feels. Like a like a big film, even though it just focuses on these two characters, it stayed with me until even after I finished watching watching it. Until now, <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, I I agree with that. You know, I I was ready to not like it. Like, okay, two and a half hour epic ish about men. Sure. You know, the things that you do for this podcast. Sure. And then I turn out to see this 
surprisingly emotional. A different type of film, which I really loved seeing. So, let's do it so that. Не хочешь ли поужинать с нами? Спасибо, капитан. Моя ошибка, хочу кушать. Сегодня ничего не кушай. Ты кто будешь-то? Китаец? Кореец? А я Гольд. All right, so let's talk about how Der Suzala won Best Foreign Language Film at the Oscars. Um, it was released in July in Soviet Union, and in '75, and it was then again released in January of five the following year. At the Moscow International Film Festival, it won Golden Prize. Surprise, surprise. And then, again, this was Soviet Union's second win and fifth nomination. It doesn't have any other much big awards except from the Moscow International Film Festival Award. And then, this is the last year of two rules. So, there were two major rules that ended after this year this is the last year where a film can be nominated in two separate oscar years so for example amar cord was submitted by italy for foreign language film in 1974 but since it was only released in the united states in 1975 it was then nominated for best director in 1975 that cannot happen anymore That's not allowed. And then this is also the last year where voting for this category is just free for all. Because in 1976, Academy members have to watch all five nominees before they get to vote. Otherwise, you can't vote for this category. So, I think it's fair. Why did it take them? that long for that rule so anyone could have voted even if, if they didn't watch it for example I just watched Der Suzala oh, I like Kurosawa I like Der Suzala I haven't seen that for I'll vote for it I mean that's, you can still do it now actually they wouldn't really know if you watched everything yeah but there was certain length of time from the 76 onwards I think it stayed until like the I don't know if early 2010s or like late 2000s where Academy members have to watch all five. It means manually tracking members if they've seen the five. Only then you can get to vote. This is the last year where that's not in action. Because the following year, we got a surprise winner immediately. 
So this is the last year of like, you know, you can vote whatever you want. And there's Suzala was the winner this year. And I think it's time to talk about the films that were nominated alongside it. The nominees were Letter de Marusha from Mexico, The Promised Land from Poland, Sandaka Number no. 8 from Japan, and Scent of a Woman from Italy. So which one of these four would you like to discuss first? Mm, let's go with Scent of a Woman. Scent of a Woman. Um, also nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay. So it is about a young soldier who... It's from Italy. <laughs> it's, a, it's about a young soldier who is tasked to be the guide of a former captain. Another captain. Right? Um, another captain who is now um, blind. So for a weekend, he has to serve as his guide. And uh, this captain uh, is on his way to fulfill a suicide pact. Oh, and by the way, he loves women. Like, love women. And he says he can smell a beautiful woman. So, he claims. Oh, it won Best Actor in Cannes in 1975. There you go. So, what do you think of Set of a Woman? When I was watching the film, it's like the actor playing Fausto always overwhelms the other guy. The his guide. Sometimes it was distracting, like he would always dominate the scene. He he he'll always I don't know. He's like a force in every scene he's in compared to the others. So it's like I don't know, it's like um some of the themes I don't know if it could be shown today. Some of the offensive, were you offended with some of the his actions, Faustus? Or is it okay with you, even if, or it, is it because that's him? It's just because it's him. I mean, it's it's the character. He is really um, outspoken, a thirsty dick. <laughs> so, so you know, I, 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 I would hate to meet someone like that in person but you know that that's just a film or was it also a product of its time like when you have it can be, it both. Can be both but yeah para, sorry well um i did feel like oh yeah this was shot in the 1970s with that backward um frank setups or scenes I mean, aside from, I think it's also dated. I just also think that I don't know if there's going to, maybe there's going to be some trepidations about, or doubts on making a film about that a character like this that's not consciously criticizing it. But yet again, the, you know, he's the biggest character, but he's not actually our way into the story. The way our way into the story is the young the young soldier. Um, so did you like the film? Not really compared to their soon. It's like I like the actor who played the, the, the lead role, but 
I hate it in terms of the story. It's like, okay, we have this rude guy going around. Like, I don't know. I, I didn't really, I didn't know what to think of it. It's, can I ask a question? If the American remake, is it, how did they change? As far as I can remember, which is from like um, more than like a decade already, since <laughs> last time I've seen it, the one with Al Pacino, I think the misogyny is kind of toned down a bit. Or maybe I'm wrong. I'm sorry. I haven't, can't really remember it. And um, there is a longer story of the young soldier. And in the film, it's it's not really a soldier. It's it's a student in the university. There's a lo- longer story before he meets the captain. Uh, backstory? For, for Who the, uh, a longer backstory for the young guy? Yeah, like uh, we take uh, more time before we get to meet the captain. How, how about you? What, what do you think of the film? Do you like it? Or not? Um, I don't love it. I don't love it. Um, I think it's pretty well made. Um... The character is outwardly misogynistic and he's really into women and I just don't jive with those kind of people. <laughs> but um I think it I don't know, I'm not sh- I don't th- I don't necessarily think that a character that I don't agree with is a reason why I don't like a film. Um or maybe or maybe <laughs> I'm really not conscious of my biases right now. Um I also do think that the humor is kind of dated. Um, I think where it stands, especially with its character, um, it feels it feels like something that could be considered modern at the time, probably. Ah. It's frankness with regards to his, his sexual drive. Not to really... Sex because we don't really get to see him have sex, right? I mean, he does have sex with a prostitute, but that's it. Um, I don't know. It's not something that I feel strongly about. I guess that's how I would put it because I can't really pinpoint. I mean, even the main character, the main character is kind of grating to a certain point, but it is deliberate. It is a deliberate choice, and for that, I am, I, uh, I can't question really the choices made by Vittorio Gassman in performing the character of uh, Fausto Consolo, the captain. Um, but it's been called delightful. Delightful. And sensitive. I don't think I agree with those. <laughs> At that time, it's, um, that's why it was nominated. Um... To be fair, I think the last few minutes of the film gets to show his vulnerability more. Um, the captain, because I think for the most part, we really get to see him as this stubborn force. And he really is a force, in my opinion. He is unstoppable. He is loud. He is. He occupies the room and sucks the oxygen out of it. Um, but other than that, I... I don't have a strong attachment to this film. Maybe it's just a personal thing. I mean, because usually I can I can say what I don't like about a film, but with this one, it's like this is not for me. 
I don't know its I don't know its reception now, in the two thousand twenties, but it it feels dated. It does feel dated. I think it will last. I mean, it did not age well. I guess, like, I mean, you you'd really know that it's a film from the past, from the nineteen seventies. Yeah. A complete opposite with Darcy. If we're going to compare. Mm Hmm. And also, um, the way how its attitude towards its its female characters, I think it's also it it dates it, and it how it treats like groping, uh, for example, as very light, <laughs> funny, <laughs> nice. How it treats that, it's one of those signs that it's a it's dated. Um. But I really can't say it's a bad film. So again, maybe it's just not for me, and or it's just a sign of the times. So, what will what do you think are the reasons why it got in? They liked it. I don't think you get in if people hated your film. They it clicked with the members conservative of the members of the academy. Yeah, you know this is like this is the seventies. There is a certain excitement and like sexual revolution and all that, but also, kind of, kind of, kind of understand that this is more conservative academy as well. The shift in the demographics of the academy, in terms of gender and race and age, didn't really happen that much until the late two thousand tens. So it, it's almost, sucks to repeat it this way, but we're dealing with all white men. For the most part, who well, I don't know saw themselves. <laughs> I'm not sure. I don't want to judge all men. I think men are generally trash, but you know, who am I to say? Anyway, that's sin of a woman. I mean, again, and to just to the listeners, I, I, that was my take. I don't really have strong feelings about this one, so I would just advise that you catch it because I think it's remastered somewhere. So it's it's in good shape, so you can watch it for yourself and just judge like, oh well, this didn't age well, but still can appreciate it in the context of the time or not. Yeah. So which film would you like to discuss next? Okay, letters. Let's go with letters. Oh my. All right, letters to Marusha from Mexico. Oh. It is. It. It uh, it screened at the Cannes International Cannes Film Festival in seventy six already. Uh, it is about um, a strike of workers in uh, mine in a mine mining <laughs> mining area um, because of very poor working conditions. But then the mining owners and the government. Strike back using the Chilean army to crush the strike of the workers. Yeah. Um, what do you think oh. of Letters de Marusha? When I was watching it, I was reminded of our current political state. I mean, of course, the workers. Uh, Engaging in a strike and then the army killing 
I was shocked with the death toll for the film. It's like <laughs> they keep on killing people. They, oh my god, they. I think by the, it's like by the half of the film, like already 40 or 50 have been killed already. It's like, oh my God, everyone's dying left and right in the film. Um, but I found the film to be very, I don't know, it's like what I expected from a film from the 1970s. It's like very, felt mechanical to me. It's like the acting wasn't really good. Only, only a few actors really portrayed very well. But I don't know. I really like. I really like it because it was like very mechanical to me. It's like, okay, we'll just shoot this, or as long as somebody said their line, go 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 on to the next scene. Also, in terms of the dialogue, it's like very in your face I, maybe that's just my bias like i don't like i don't like like loud or how can i say this in terms of political something almost like propaganda it's like okay that can work but maybe they could have said it in another way or i don't know it's like sometimes it just felt in your nose I didn't really like. Can you? What is your indication that the film is mechanical, in your opinion? Okay. Um. I think I'm biased with, but it's my personal bias with uh, acting. That's like. Well, maybe some of them they're not really actors, so I guess that's. Is it the fault of the filmmakers, or or they didn't find any trained actors to do? roles mostly with the acting like um, the other workers it's like they just got someone to say those lines or like the weeping women or the women on the side when they were watching the execution I don't know it's like did it feel good to me Make sense. Uh, sure. Yeah, in terms of how, for you at least, the acting didn't really like come to life. Before I continue, I just want to say that this is actually inspired by an actual massacre in Marusha in 1925, where 500 people 500. died. 500 people died. 90% of those were workers or their family members. I loved it. I thought it was very powerful. Um, the filmmaking for me is unbelievable at times. Of course, there are some parts where I kind of see where you're coming from, but it felt mechanical or maybe not the most organic flow of dramatic flow. <laughs> but... um. There are also moments of just genuine power. And the film doesn't shy away from the horrors of the strike. And, um, you know, in terms of epic filmmaking, I think you can also say that this is another 
epic filmmaking as well. But it doesn't focus just on two characters. It focuses on a lot of characters. And it's as if they kind of blend together. And it's really in the experience of feeling the frustration and the anger and the deception that the mining company and the government are doing to take control of the strike. And it enrages you, I think, and it enraged me. And it has moments of these huge crowd scenes where you just feel the palpable tension. And the filmmaking is superb in a lot of places. Um, I think it, it reaches this goal of enraging you. Making you realize how fucked up this system is. That allows us to murder workers just because they can, because they demand better. And I think in the essence of the film, essence of a film, um, it captures that. And that is very important for me. There are certain aspects that feel um, not organic, which again, probably I could just ascribe to the times. But other than that, I was deeply disturbed. I was moved. I was angered felt a lot of emotions watching this film and I think that's what matters to me. What about the ending? It's like they didn't win. It just showed Yeah. He didn't win. Exactly. So it's like what the hell happened? Like I thought they Capitalism won. I thought during the, the the final battle I thought they were gonna get back to some point, but they just lost all throughout until three of them escaped. I think it's when they start to adhere with history that <laughs> 500 people died. Um, and, you know, it it doesn't shy away from that, I guess. that It's the point that their defeat and the loss of life that was depicted in this, at times, graphic way. You know, there's a lot of, Oops. like I said, the body yeah. count in this uh, film is mm-hmm. a lot. Yes. But it, it never felt gratuitous. I always felt there is there was empathy whenever one of the my the striker the strikers the people in the strike or their family members are killed. I always feel that their death mattered. It didn't feel like, you know, one of those because, you know, there are films that we see where either the death is not taken seriously or just taken as, you know, for, in- for entertainment purposes. Oh, you know, that was a spectac- spectacular way to die. With this one, even in characters that we don't necessarily know, not even in just their death, when they put their lives on the line, when the women laid on, for example, on the train tracks, so, so they stopped the train. So they thought, you know, it worked. And then they just shot the women. So it doesn't shy away from that because it's making a point of how ruthless the system was. And you, f- you feel that it is the way, if you want to compel the audience to feel something about this atrocity that happened, you have to not shy away from it. And it's not making a spectacle out of the deaths. It's making you feel that those deaths matter and that's why i love it i i i appreciate the respect in depicting death even if it's good to even if it's a graphic at times 
every scene that there is a death felt necessary for us to understand the gravity of the situation, the gravity of the injustice that they're going through. And it's, it's, it, it left me with very heavy feelings. You know? Yeah. Actually, now that you said that, um, I mean, even if what I said before, it also did impact me, even though I may have found it to be mechanical. Some, some things to be mechanical. But I was also thinking like maybe maybe that's the point of the film too. Like, like revolutions aren't always graceful or smooth. So yeah, it's like it had to show what really happened in that room. Yeah, and yeah, and I they weren't necessarily trying to start a revolution. They were just yeah. I mean, I I I get where you're coming from. It's just like I don't necessarily think they thought of themselves as revolutionaries. They just wanted better working conditions, and then they got pushed and pushed and pushed because for some reason it's it's radical to demand better conditions, right? To demand better working conditions is um, bad <laughs> to society. Um. <laughs> uh, and um, you see how messy it can get. You see, not only that, despite there is a rising resistance, these are still human beings learning their ways. And because they aren't really a well-oiled machine of a revolution, because they're human beings in the first place, the people in the system take advantage of that. So now, do you love the film? <laughs> well, I don't know. It's like it could have been made. It could there could have been some ways to make it better, but I don't know. Mm-hmm. I I I agree with that. But throughout the film, it kept. I was. It kept reminding me of what what's happening now with our current situation here in the Philippines. So I guess. It did leave an impact to me. So, good job. I think all over the world, we still see these. We still see how the interest of a company trumps over the interests of the larger population, the workers. I mean... um. You know, these people who demand better working conditions, they get tagged as socialists or radicals or leftists or communists. But, of course, you know, where do we see companies prioritized over workers? I think that's the entire capitalist society. Countries that support that. I mean, you know, there's probably... In America, not though. Like, thank God it's not happening to us. Like, <laughs> you're funny. You know, it's funny. Um, it's but it's it. This is an extreme form, and unfortunately, it's a it's a historical thing. And up to now, it's happening in certain places. Like, I understand where you're coming from. That it's happening to our country. We especially um, the way labor um, people who fight for better working conditions. People who fight for environment, 
gosh. It's it's unfortunate that it still rings true from today. <laughs> from a film that's made in 1975 about a massacre that happened in 1925. Like, we're almost reaching 100-year anniversary on the anniversary of that massacre and we're still like, yeah, we get it. It's not good. But, you know, in terms of Mexican film history, I see here at the Ariel Awards, it won Best Editing, Cinematography, Screenplay, Supporting Actress. Who, who was the supporting actress? The one who died in the train? Yeah, I the one know. who died in the train? Or the... I'll try to check. Or the lover of Gregorio? I don't know. I don't remember. And then supporting actor. There's a tie. Two supporting actors from the film. Who's the other one? I think the one, of course, should be Gregorio. Who's the other guy? Wait, I don't have a list. Of Wait, the guy with the, one, um, not the leader, the Gregorio. 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 Gregorio? No, no, no. Gregorio is not oh. nominated. Who is it? No. Um, Luisa was nominated Who's Louis? for Best Actress. Who's Luisa? <laughs> sorry. Exactly. <laughs> and then Best Director and of course Best Picture. Wait, I, wait, um, I, I remember the scene where the women working, that the women were washing, I think, something and then they were whispering one by one. Do you, do you remember that scene? Yeah. Did you like that scene? I understand how it was executed cinematically wise. I understand. Like, oh, if they're trying to keep it a secret, they could have just. One person would be the point person, or or maybe it tried to highlight the collective action. The passing of information in one take. I just found it weird that scene, like. All of them were. Sure. Yeah, I get I get what you mean. Yeah, almost comical to me. Yeah, when when I saw that moment, I was just like, "Stop!" I'm just kidding. Um, all right. So that's that. Let us let us to Marusha. Uh, let us from Marusha. Um, Sandaka number eight. Oh Are you God. ready? Sandaka number eight. Okay. All right. So Sandaka number eight from Japan. It premiered in. Uh, it screened in Berlin International Film Festival. And then it won Best Film at the Asia Pacific Film Festival in 73. Berlin Best Actress for Kino Yotanaka. It is about um, a young woman, a young girl named, I think, uh, Osaki. Uh, Osaki, um, an old woman who is interviewed by a journalist. And as it turns out, uh, Osaki was one of those women who worked outside of Japan during the first half of the 20th century, who worked in a Malaysian brothel as a cleaner, and then after a year or so, was forced to prostitution. So it's another historical film. Yes, and it's not fun as well. Which is good that it's not fun because it's not supposed to be fun. Um, what do you think of Sanaka number eight? 
it's um I liked it more than the rest. So I, I mean, sorry, it's my second pick. If I were to <laughs> rank it, sorry. Uh, okay. Yeah. I was going to joke that the Russian direct uh, was this directed by a Russian since it's from Japan. No, um, it was important to highlight that Japan lost foreign language film to the Russian film that yes, but nominated by directed yeah. by a Japanese great um, when I watched Sundaka number 8 I at first I didn't know where the story was go- was heading like we have okay we have this journalist who by chance met this old lady at a, an eatery at the restaurant and then she followed her home and then all of a sudden, she was exactly the person that she was hoping to find, the journalist. And then I didn't expect the, the film to flash back to the old lady's past, to the story of the old lady. Uh, Okasi? Or, or, what's her name again? The old lady. Osaki, sorry. I didn't expect the film to turn that way, but it's it, it sort of it was sort of like there too. Like I didn't expect it to be that good, but I I will end up liking the film because it didn't feel like a nineteen. 19- I always judge the films like by that. I did feel like a nineteen seventies film. Yes, it, it it's really different. Your turn. Oh, the floor <laughs> is mine. <laughs> All right. Um, Sandaka number eight. I did not know what that meant. And then when it did... It's like, oh my god. Oh, shit. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, when... When she was gonna be... She was, start, she was gonna work... First of all, overseas at a young age. She was... Yeah. Second, she ended up working in a brothel. You know, it's a setup for disaster. And then when... She was forced to be... Um, a, a prostitute... And the first um, time that she was raped was with the owner. It's like, you know, that that sexist thing of like breaking her in. Um, it's, a, it's a really horrifying take on this one, which is really appropriate because it makes us understand the gravity of the situation. And... I, I feel like the film finds that, you know, it's it's not shying away from the act. It's not that it's full of rape scenes, but it doesn't shy away from the horrors of it as well. More of it psychologically because of what she of what she is in emotionally when she's there after she was raped for the first time 
and how she starts to um try to take control of herself like you know what? i'm gonna work my ass off i'm gonna i'm not only gonna get foreigners in this port city to sleep with me i'm also gonna get natives so that i'm gonna again like, I'm, i'm gonna pay my debts and i'm gonna go back to my country so i can go home um it felt uh refreshing that that was the take that the direction it went because it's a character that is on full survival mode who is driven by like you know that moment those moments when we're we're really doing something that we don't like doing or we hate but because we have a bigger goal and it's almost um not necessarily empowering but kind of like good for her that she has uh realigned herself to that goal but it doesn't diminish the f- the horrors the fact that it's wrong and in fact you know that night that sequence when i think there are soldiers that came yeah, into town they're marching and they had to do like 20 to 30 soldiers in one night and at the end of the night she was just like exhausted in bed it's horrifying and then her lover left her that same night yeah and the lover married because I don't know. It's it's giving me a lot of like heavy emotion, heavy heart right now just talking about this film and it just goes to show the power of it. I, I don't think it's exploitative. I'm sure I also want to hear other people who think otherwise on how they think and the reasons. But for me, I don't think it is necessarily. Mm-hmm. I think it just Ghost show enough horror. Yeah, yeah I think they handled it with caution, with that sensitivity. In terms of sensitivities, I I didn't get why the lover. It wasn't really explained why he left her. Why he yeah. left? I think that's the point. He just left. There's no explanation, or maybe uh, it's one thing to know that your partner is. A prostituted woman. It's another thing to see her actually doing it after, after, the, after the fact. You know, she he saw her after the twenty thirty men, and she's like just laid out in bed, almost, almost dead. You know, because of how exhausted she was, and her only maybe it was too, it was tough for him to separate that. Yeah, it's a confronting moment. I thought he was really gonna save her, like because like he made a promise. Uh, I'll save up for the money. I will get you out of here. Then just like the like I said, men are trash. What what do you think about the journalist? Uh, like she didn't she didn't reveal. She did say at the, at their first meeting that. She was gathering information. What did you think of that? You know, as um, as someone who has fallen in love with a journalist before, uh, Edna. whoa, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Edna. It, it, oh no, um, I that's ethically questionable, but in the end, right? She says that she was. Well, I I was 
I guess that she would be all right with it only, but I don't know. It's like I forgot about that. It's still ethically yeah, questioned. I forgot about that. That yeah. she didn't really um, send her true intentions from the beginning. Yeah. Um. But also, I don't know. I mean, I don't know about my journalist friends or my journalist people that I loved. Um, what do you think of that? Because there is a certain there are certain aspects I think where deception is the only way you get the story. But wait, as I. But yeah, the but the but does it apply here? I just remembered that the old lady deceived her neighbors when. She introduced the journalist as the wife of her son. So it's like, I think it was fair. I mean, I think, what would I say? I don't think you can level the journalist deceiving her. I think even if she didn't say it, it's the nature of the old woman to tell, to talk about her life. Like either way, she was going to say all those things. Whether... Yeah, and also, she, yeah, the journalist didn't lie. She just didn't say that. Yeah, which is an act of omission. Obstruction. Omission. 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 She didn't lie, but she also didn't disclose. So it's, not, it's an act of com- omission, not commission. Um, right in the end, she says that she's a daughter. Yeah, I, like when she said mother, please forgive me. I was thinking. It's like just an Asian thing. Was it an Asian thing, or was it? Was it was she a child from one of? I don't know. I think it it just means like, in Japan, they call their elderly older people like mother. Yeah, I think it's an Asian thing. I mean, sorry, Western listeners, but. Um, I think here in Asia, especially like I don't know, in Philippines and in Japan, like older people, you can call them like aunt or mom or grandma, even if you're not really related to them. It's just the way we roll. We every, everyone, we think of everyone as family. <laughs> like, just like the way that we do give respect. Yeah, I don't think she's the mother. I think it would be a too weird of a twist. I think she just calls her mother because she's old. And she's apologizing, right? Because then she revealed that she's a journalist. It's not like as if the story would destroy her or anything. Like a expose story. But yeah, the omission part, she didn't say it. So it's okay at the end. I think it wasn't much of a big deal for me. Yeah, at that point, I think it was too late that, you know, okay, I... Yes. Sure. And uh, I I think also there is this emotional investment already in the story, uh, in both, you know, the journalist and and the, the old woman. And I think this is one of those cases where I understand the framing device of the journalist coming in because... It deals not only with what happened in the past, but what's happening to the old woman in the present. It's not an unnecessary, like, tell me the story. But there is also a story in the present on how up to this day, 
Osaki is still being treated like her, a pariah because everyone in the place knows that she was she worked as a prostitute unwillingly they didn't know that part she was forced into sexual slavery um you know she was called a karayuki-san young women who were forced into sexual slavery um in the pacific countries during the early 20th century uh and i think this film is full of empathy um for not pity but empathy for osaki because we get to see her actual journey and it's heartbreaking but at least you know a seed has been planted to the journalist of how uh we gotta start changing the way we talk about these women and this sounds cheesy but i think you know the journalist acts as the surrogate not necessarily of i think i think the journalist acts as can act as a parallel to the actual film because when the journalist gets the story out hopefully she gets to man- she manages she would manage to get to people understand more the karaoke san yes. just like uh-huh. the film once we get to see this film hopefully we stop we really stop judging women doing sex work especially when we don't know if they were willing or not because truthfully in the line of sex work there's also a lot of trafficking trafficking involved and we get to just clown with like a uh, dirty women ah don't speak with that person ah. we're dismissing them like right nasty yeah we are ostracizing them and i think that's that speaks to um the power of the film is that it transcends because this is a very specific cultural uh aspect of the, of japanese history the karaoke-san and the japanese occupation of the countries in the pacific and then exporting women there but it speaks to a wider experience and it's full of emotion without necessarily hinging on big melodrama i mean it, it is a melodrama but not too much it doesn't cause on big emotional moments i think the emotional moments are when we start to understand more the weight of what's happening um it's very matter of fact as well um or maybe i'm re- remembering the film wrong <laughs> it, it's it's powerful it's a powerful film also the ending in the cemetery do you remember that what you said mm-hmm. no <laughs> do you remember can you remind you just watched it before this is so i so i remember. of course yes really nice thank you Wait, I, I like to tell the listeners like it felt like I was in film school again. I was assigned. <laughs> I was assigned. Quiet viewing. At least five viewings with the deadline. Uh, it felt like I was under Professor Hanna's class. He's gonna fail me anyway. 
Sure. Sure. In the ending, the journalist said, she asked for the directions, like, where's Japan? And then the guy said, it's nothing. And then she noticed that all of the graves of the prostitutes there, they were facing uh, against Japan. So, like she said, uh, they're resting with their back to Japan. So it's like, It sort of encapsulates their whole um, the hardships they went through their whole life. Like even in Japan, they're not welcome. They're seen as a disgrace. And finally, I mean, at least in death, like they're able to rest away from Japan. Yeah. Oh yeah, that I remember now, and that I remember now, and that's a it's a pretty powerful statement. And we also end um, on the journalist walking away. Yes. Something like which something like there soon. Which gives <laughs> us yeah, which gives us time to think. Because it just goes on and on and on. It gives us time to think of what just happened. And you know, sometimes the best ending is a cut to black. Sometimes the best ending is to just let the camera roll. And but this one, I think there's got to be a lot of reflection, especially what what just ha- what just happened in a, an hour or so. Um, I really liked it. <laughs> oh, the words <laughs> failed me. I'm sorry. Oh my gosh. Five second pause. Like me too. Liked it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so that's yeah. What about sorry for not watching the Promised Land? Is it also a historical film? Just part of them. I was just gonna go there. Yeah, the fifth nominee here is the Promised Land. Um, I'll talk about this film because I've seen it. Um, promise. Just kidding. <laughs> no. Um, the Promised Land is from Poland. It is. It's screened at the Cannes Film Festival in May and also screened at the Moscow Film Festival in 17 where it won the Golden Prize tied with Dersu Uzala. So, you should have seen it. I'm just kidding. Uh, it is based on a novel that was set that tells the story of a Pole, a German, and a Jew building a factory in 19th century while capitalism blossoms. Uh, um, what can you say about the film? <laughs> the whole stuff. <laughs> I love it. It is delicious filmmaking. It is, again, it feels epic, but it's so focused on its three main characters that you're going on a ride with the epicness, with such, I don't know, um, understanding of the human weight. Um, technically, there's, it's, it's unimpeachable, I guess. There is just, it's, the direction is top-notch. 
However, I also just want to go and say that um, it, it felt like a ride. A ride that I was so happy to take. Um, and its three characters are fascinating because of how, how different they are and also how similar and how they clash and come together. Um, and their quest to achieve their life goals of building their own factory at the blossoming of capitalism. Um, there are several scenes of just striking power and it ends on an abrupt but very powerful note. Um, it's, it's a film of extreme fascination. Uh, it's so beautifully done that uh, I love it. I, I didn't expect to love it too. I thought, all right, three hours. Like, oh my God. <clears throat> but you know after seeing it is that I I surrender I cannot make a film like this I'm so happy this film exists so it's like, oh it's so well done so it's like Moscow Film Festival for you like is it tied there soon it's just, yeah it I mean for you there. is it safe for me to I'll talk about it okay. later <laughs> yeah <laughs> so um, I kind of I really like this bunch, this group of nominees that we're talking about so mm-hmm. far. I mean, without having seen the promise now, what do you feel about the four that we have? Hmm. General feelings. Well, I think with most of them, I didn't expect. But first of all, I did I didn't do any research online so that. I'll just go in blindly or so that I don't have any bias, like who won or, well, yeah, so I have no idea going in when I watch the films. But these four films, I don't, I don't like Santa Claus. It's 50-50 for me since I like uh, Dersu and Sandaka number eight. And then the bottom half would be letters and sentable all right so with me i am aside from set of a woman i am i am impressed by these five uh, four five four i am impressed by these four um i find it hard to rank the four so i'm not gonna say my ranking until okay. later so let's just go first with the other films, with the other nominated films. Mm-hmm. Um, that year, the Oscars, again, the last year where a film can be nominated in two separate years. So Amarcord was nominated for Director and Original Screenplay this year, where it won Foreign Language Film in 1974. And I haven't seen Amarcord yet because I will watch it for the 1974 episode. My first Fellini. And then The Magic Flute from Sweden. It was nominated for Costume Design. It is directed by Ingmar Bergman. And it is said that it's one of the best opera films ever. Um, I didn't manage to see this. I am so sorry. It is... Um, it is a television production, but it was shown first on... TV for... Uh, what do you call this? 
Kill for I TV. Forgot. What's the term? Made. Made film for, for TV. television, yeah. TV film? Made for TV. I think. Yeah. It was made for TV. So I don't know how it qualified at the Oscars, but anyway. <laughs> um, and then I have also seen And Now My Love from France. It was nominated for Best Original Screenplay. It's about two people who never really get to meet, only just meeting tangentially multiple times in their lives. Um, and it's a story of three generations of the same family, from Holocaust until the present, which is 70s. Um, and how these two people ended up together, but that really ends, they really end up together at the end of the film. <laughs> so you really see their lives separately. I'm just gonna say, it was nominated for original screenplay, I'm just gonna say, this is my favorite film, 1975. I'm so glad I saw it for this podcast. It is unlike anything I've seen. It's so playful. I understand that people would hate it. But it's so playful. It's so energetic. It's so in a, so fascinating. And just distinctive. And oh, I love I it. I think it's also because of the reasons why I liked it. It's full of visual energy and editing. And it's scope my turn off people. It's um, peculiarities in terms of its sensibilities might turn off people. But for me, I, I loved it. I loved how unusual it was and how it really played with form and time and expectations. And it's uh, it was a really delicious ride. And I'm so glad I watched it for this podcast because I, I'm not, I don't need to watch it, but I did. <laughs> and I'm so happy that I did. <laughs> so... Um, Really, really glad that I got to saw it. Got to see it. <laughs> and then the story of Adelaide, also from France, was nominated for Best Actress, Isabella Gianni, at the time 20 years old, at the time the youngest uh, Best Actress nominee. It's about a woman, uh, the daughter of Victor Hugo, Adele, who travels to Nova Scotia. Um in Canada to basically stalk a man that he loves and she loves so much. I think, I, I don't know if it's Nova Scotia, but in Halifax, <laughs> she's madly in love with this man. And then it becomes a very destructive obsession from her. Um, you said you you have a relationship with this film, right? I've watched it a long time ago, but I can't remember... Actually, I can't really remember it. Sorry, I can't provide any. <laughs> Wait, when when did you watch it? For film class. Uh, Which class? I didn't get to see it in film that class. Film one seven seven. In theory. What? what film class theory is that? class. It's one seven Sorry, one. Film one seven one. Sorry, I forgot under what. Oh my! I think. It's, I don't know. I can't. Who's your Who's your professor then? Sir Johnson. Big, mm. the big one. Why? No, Campos, mine was Sir so. Campos. So I didn't get to watch it. Um. Yeah. So, with adult age, 
I saw it specifically for this podcast, but I'm also fascinated by its history and a bit best actress nomination for Isabella Gianni. Uh, who was she up? I'm who was fine she up, with the who was she up against for best actress? She was uh she was up against Anne Margaret for Tommy, Louise Fletcher for One Flew Over the Cuckoo's yes. Nest, Carol Kane <laughs> in Hester Street, and Glenda Jackson for Hedda. Um, she won a lot of awards for this one. Um, you know, American awards. So, I'm fine with the film. I am always going to be fascinated with what Isabella Johnny does. She is a screen presence unlike any one. Um, I know I'm not on the popular opinion here. I'm not in love with the performance. But she continued to get better and better and better just as the performance went on. Um, I respect the film. I know this that's a disappointing thing to say <laughs> for a film that is well regarded. It was directed by Francois Truffaut. Like, oh gosh, she just respects it. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, that's just me being honest. I um. Yeah, that's my thoughts on America. I don't have thoughts, right? Too bad. So, this year, um, in terms of submissions, we did have 21 films submitted. Um, some of the films that I just want to mention for just a second are From Algeria, Chronicle of the Years of Fire. It was directed by Mohamed Lakhdar Hamina. It is about the Algerian war for independence through the eyes of a peasant. And it won the Palme d'Or Prize at the 1975 Cannes Film Festival. Nazareno and Nazareno Cruz and the Wolf from Argentina. It's a fantasy. It's about a young farmer in a rural town. And then he starts and then he suddenly is visited by the devil about a curse and it's entered at the ninth moscow international film festival and the next one is orders from canada it's directed by michel brot it's about five civilians that are imprisoned it's a docufiction it's scripted but is inspired by a number of interviews with actual prisoners and um it is about the incarceration of innocent civilians during the 1970 October Crisis and the War Measures Act, enacted by Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau, where it won Best Act, Best Director at Cannes. And then, India Song from France, directed by Marguerite Dura. Uh, it's about a promiscuous wife of a French ambassador in India. Um... It premiered at the Cannes Film Festival, out of competition, and also the New York Film Festival. And then, The Enigma of Kaspar Hauser from West Germany, directed by Werner Herzog. It won the Grand Prix at Cannes. It is about a man who lived the first 17 years of his life in a tiny cellar. 
the traveling players from Greece, directed by Theodoros Angelopoulos. Um, it is an expansive story set in Greece, 1939 to 1952, um, where uh, it won the International Film Critics Award, the Fipreski at Cannes. Adoption from Hungary. It's directed by Marta Mejaros. It won the Golden Bear in Berlin. It is about an unmarried female factory worker who becomes interested in children and ad- tries to adapt one. Assassinations in Davos. Davos. Directed by Rolf Lizzy. It's about the assassination of Swiss Nazi Wilhelm Gustloff by a student in 1936. The Day That Shook the World from Yugoslavia. Directed by Veliko Bulajic. It stars Christopher Plummer. May he rest in peace. It's about the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand in 1914. That became the catalyst to the start of the World War One. Those are some of the submissions out of the 21 that are worth mentioning. But if you can seek out these films, the list is on uh, Wikipedia. So reliable. But... If you can catch these films, because I believe, well, Miss Universe, I do believe that there are a lot of interesting films in this category that were not even nominated, but only submitted and wasn't accepted as nominees. But regardless, it's fascinating if you have the time to explore these films. And then, um, and then, you still want to mention a few films that were were not submitted, but they're pretty important parts of you know, uh, world cinema. I think we gotta talk about The Mirror um, from Soviet Union, directed by Andrei Tarkovsky. It was only released, uh, it was released in Soviet Union in March and then Moscow Film Festival in in July. I don't know how to describe this film. It's... uh, it's a nonlinear narrative with um, memories and flashbacks. And I, I honestly just want to keep it that way. I don't understand what, what is it about. But I'm just going to try with um, IMDb. What does it say? A dying man in his 40s remembers his past. His childhood, his mother, the war, personal moments, and things that tell of the recent history of all the Russian nation. So, what do you think of the mirror? Um, I was... Or, or mirror, sorry. The... I was a bit glad that you said, you also said that you didn't know what to think of the film because I'll just say that my weakness is with um, experimental films. Would you say that this film is experimental? I'm actually not sure. I'm actually scared of using that word because after <laughs> film school, I realized that not everything that I just don't yeah. understand is experimental. <laughs> or at that time, was it? <laughs> but anyway, I didn't. I don't know why I didn't really get the film as well. But I, I did some research after, like some. Uh, some Russians wrote a letter to the director saying they felt strongly about the film. So I guess is that part of it? Like 
they share a collective memory of Russia or I don't know. I, I don't know what to think of it as well. It's like okay. He used uh real footage, historical footage with uh, flashbacks using the same actress uh for the mother. She's the same actress, right? The one who played I forgot her name, Natasha, Natalia. Natalia. She also played the mother in the Yeah. The mother uh, and the wife was played the mother and the wife was played the same part. actress. I don't know. It, it didn't register to me. I was lost. <laughs> I was watching the film. How about you? What did you remember when you watched the film? I remember that I love the fact that I didn't understand everything. I guess I I mean <laughs> that's not a good thing to say, but I think the film asks you to trust. It's almost like a like the the that that game that we play, like that when you just try to lean back and try to fall on the floor and trust that someone will catch you. The game of love. It it. Just joking. Oh, what the heck. <laughs> It's, it's <laughs> yuck, <laughs> but true. Uh, it's almost it's it's asking you to not try to decipher yeah, everything. Just feel what's your what you're seeing, what you're hearing. Just trust the experience, and you will understand it on. A deeper level that can't be explained by what is it about necessarily. I think that's sorry. I'd share that. Uh, I think that's the reason why experimental films are my weaknesses because I need to understand. It's like I just I can't just feel. It's like I need. I just remember my. Um, uh, experimental class at film school. It's like when my teacher was explaining these films, I would get it. But when it's my turn to make it, it's like I don't know where to begin because. Who was your teacher? I took it twice. I failed the first one. Mom did one. No, it's okay. I failed the first one. Mom did one. Old wounds. And then my second was Serbanal. Oh, holy. Why? <laughs> so, but he did say, I, I remember him saying, like, you don't really have to understand experimental films as long as it made you feel something. I could understand that, but I, I still need to understand what I'm seeing. So I, it was a hard, it was hard for me because I was trying to make sense of things and I got lost. What did you feel? Sorry, if I may ask. You said that you felt things. What did you feel? Even though you have no. I felt. I felt longing. I felt memory. I felt. For some reason, even with I, I felt that, the storyteller was missing, not 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 missing, missing like lost, longing. but like was missing a part of his life. And I see it through the various ways we see recollections in the film, either dreams or memories. Sometimes I don't even know what, 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 which one of that is the dream and which one is the memory. But the way 
they don't really make it clear all the time. And you just feel that these images are coming from a perspective of someone as if they're looking back at life. Whether looking back at like actual events or feelings that they've felt. Um, in a short runtime that we watched this film, it's as if someone... I felt... I felt really... Uh, it's as if someone was opening up. The film... as if It's as if the, the filmmaker is opening up. Which... Um, especially in something that's decidedly non-linear and not really hinged on plot. It's not something that you commonly can hear because usually when someone's revealing themselves, it's usually very, very clear what's happening. But with this one, it's... It's a kind of unveiling of the subconscious. And I think it's even more vulnerable when you start to articulate things that you don't usually articulate. I mean, when you miss something, you don't... You just feel it. You don't necessarily explain it. Or like dreams that you have when you were younger or dreams that you have in your life. You know, you don't usually share it with everyone. And in this one, it's not even just shared. It's put to life what that yeah he's missing so for a film that is enigmatic and a film that I didn't understand all throughout I felt a certain privilege that I was yeah. watching it but it did have a certain eerie or a certain atmosphere yeah. it is also eerie yeah, it's very atmospheric, which um, which complicates the emotions that you get to feel in this film. It's not it's this, this loving, nostalgic look at life, but there's also fear and uncertainty and confronting the unknown, confronting the things that you don't understand, but confronting them anyway. Um, I don't want us to be this... Um, <clears throat> this self-conceited interpreter of art films that jerks off to theories and all. I mean, that's not my thing. But um, I am surprised that I loved it this much. I was ready to be detached. And then I saw a person opening up. And like, wow. And I don't know if that's also a feeling that um, other people would say would the mirror that it is incredibly emotional um i think it is a very emotional film um so that's the mirror and in the mirror um uh, and then oh 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 1975 is big because this is the year when the film considered to be the greatest Filipino film ever made was made. It is Manila and the Claws of Light. It's directed by Linda Broca. Uh, it is about a man who goes to, the, to Manila to work in a construction site. Also in the hopes of finding his lover who is now working as a prostitute as well. Um, 
because they met each other in the province. So, did you get to watch when this was screened in our university, the remastered version? Um, no, I don't think I was there. ABS-CBN restoration. Yeah. Ah, ah no, sorry. No, no, no. Uh, Martin Scorsese. Yeah, I think, yeah. And it's also in the Criterion now. Wait, so this was the Philippines' official end? No, we don't. We didn't have a submission. But even in the mirror, we didn't uh, submission. Why didn't we submit? Because we were in the middle of a dictatorship. <laughs> and we didn't have time. <laughs> I don't know. This is weird because this is literally the era uh, where we made our best did, films. Why didn't period. someone think of submitting? Yeah, especially that we were such an American pet at the time. You know, I would imagine like we would do like, everything was American. I mean, like if Imelda, um, like she likes to flaunt things, this is our film. Whatever. Yeah. Yeah, or maybe she wasn't really concerned with that. I don't know. Um, I don't know. I don't know her. Yeah, with Manila and the Claws of Light, um, it's so gloriously remastered. I am thankful that it was remastered by Martin Scorsese, who really loves films. Um, unfortunately, I mean, I, I you don't mm, like it. I was tired when we saw okay. the film, so I kind of fell asleep oh. in the first ten minutes. But this is really one of the few Filipino films that have that are well known outside. And it's from a national artist that we admire. And I am excited to rewatch this. Um, because there is so much about this film that it's really loaded. You know, for a film this politically charged to be made in the heat of a dictatorship. It's really remarkable. Um, I just find it kind of funny that... Um, Alright, I want to say this. Uh, for some reason, they show here that the film is... Um, oh. The film was met with anti-Chinese racism from reviewers. Because of its depiction of the Chinese character. The, the greedy businessman attic. Wait, I, I just remembered... But we were submitting films in Cannes, right? So why didn't we film? Yeah. I am puzzled. When did we, when did we start submitting? I'm 19, the first year of this category. Um, the first year of this category, really. Um, 56. And then we submitted in 67, and then 76, and then 84, and then 85. We didn't submit this one. But let's say we did submit it. Would you think it would have gotten in? I'm you not know? so sure. But it, it's something like letters also, like uh, construction, mining. Also, Sandaka. 
is that a historical drama? And I'm not sure if how they would respond to gritty contemporary city crime dramas. That's Asian, for that matter. Um, but you know, I am. This is widely available. Um, I'm so proud that this is widely available. It's in a Criterion Collection. It's restored. You get to see one of the best Filipino filmmakers at the top of his craft. So be sure to check this one out. I don't know if my opinion convinced you, but I'm really asking you to check this one out. <laughs> all right. So having said all of that and having seen some of the films, um, do you think Der Uzala was a worthy winner in this category? When you talked about The Promised Land, it, it made me doubt. It made me, I regretted not watching it so that I would have, I I would have seen where you're coming from, but since I did watch The Promised Land, I would really say there's some deserve to win. Like it's a, it's a, it's in, it's on its own. League. Really different from the others. Uh, I have seen The Promised Young Woman. I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, on a, on a, on a, on its, on its own. own. There's Suzala deserved it. It is surprisingly refreshing to see still in the 2021. It's so well made. You see Kurosawa getting it right in, in a scene level and, and an emotional level and a technical level and the directing, blocking. Everything is working so wonderfully in this film. Um... I'm not, I don't know if this is one of the more well-known Kurosawas. Because when we think of Kurosawa, we think of Rashomon, we think of um, Ran, we think of Kagemusha. This is the anomaly because it's a Soviet production, but I really hope more people get a chance to see this one because it's a really well-made one. Um, so we've, I've seen five, you've seen four. Um, I'm going to save uh. my number five. My number five is Scent of a Woman. What's your number That's four? That's my number... Wait. Sorry. My number four would be Letters from Arusha. Okay. My number four is Letters to Mar- from Marusha. What's my your number, number three? three is Scent. Scent of a Woman. My number three is Der Uzala. I know, okay. What's your number two and one? My second is Sandakan. And then Der is my number one. My number two is Sandaka wow. number eight. And my number one is The Promised Land. So. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Missed opportunity ah. to watch it. I should still watch it anyway. I, yeah, yeah I, I I really hope you get to catch it because it's a really good one. And um, I don't know if you would like it, but it's me saying. Um, but, oh, with having seen The Mirror, do you think The Mirror would have deserved to made it, make it in here? or? Uh, it's hard for me to say since I didn't really understand the film, but I don't know. I, I don't think... I, I'll just say it. It's not... I can't really... 
it's not fair for me to say something I don't really understand. Hey, it's all right. <laughs> um, you know, with me, um, like I said a while ago, this is a good year because I find it tough to rank the top four. Uh, let us address Uzala, let us from Marusha, uh, the promised land, and Sandaka number eight. I find it hard to rank them. I was moving them up and down multiple times before we even start recording. Even then, with what I've seen from this year, I'd prefer to see And Now My Love come in. If it was submitted, I can see the story of Adel H coming in at the Oscars. It makes sense. I would still prefer it over Scent of a Woman. Um, the Mirror, if it was submitted, I don't think it would be nominated. But I love it. With what I've seen, I'm gonna pick And Now My Love. But from the nominees, I picked The Promised Land. So... This is a really good year. So interesting. I know in terms of American cinema, this is like one of the best years ever in film. Like, yeah, I'm also saying the same thing in terms of world cinema. It's really exciting what we got this year. And um, even Send of a Woman, which like I am, I don't, I don't care that much. I, I still see the merit. I still see that it's, it's something that they responded to at the time. And, you know, that's what the awards are for. I mean, awards... And as much as, you know, we have our own preference, like, oh, this should win, this should not. It's really a time capsule of what the Academy likes at a time. And I think there's value to it, whether we agree with them or not. So, Aleha, thank you so much for joining me for this episode. We made it. Yes. I'm so happy that you were able to discuss this film. And uh, yes, um, it came true. We were able to have an episode because I've been getting you since the 2000s. My gosh! I thought it wasn't. I thought it was an empty promise. You know, but I, I think you have trust issues, right? Oh no! I'm just kidding. So, but thank you so much for joining me. I was really, it was really, yeah, nice to chat with you on a serious note because we would just always trash each other, like you would trash me. Yeah, and <laughs> you know, what? I'm gonna be honest. Like, I still find it hard to find your name on Messenger. Because I still haven't replaced your name on Messenger. It's still a nasty name. Oh no, I'm not going to say it. But I'm so happy. And I'm also happy in your um, recent success with Speed. I, I'm i excited to see what's going to come next. If you know, Because we never know. Filmmaking is so unpredictable now in the times. Because production stopped. And yet um, we see our, some of our friends get accepted in places. And I'm like... What is happening right now? But I'm so happy that you could make that in a film. And with, yeah. And I was part of that, right? Because when you submitted that script, I was, yeah. Yeah. came with you to the office. Uh, Oh, you came with me. I accompanied you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And (laughs) it's so funny. Uh, I don't have any grudges, but I did not get accepted. So, <laughs> no, but it was really <laughs> again. This is how life works. It's bittersweet. Anyway, again, have yeah? you have you seen that match with Joan? I've seen Joan's. I haven't seen Chet's. I haven't seen yours as well. So you've only honest. seen Joan's. 
Yeah, because she uh, she also premiered in Locarno. And yeah. Joan was also here in the 1995 episode. Yeah. So again, Alejo, thank you so much for joining me. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Carlos Ohana. This podcast at One Inch Barrier. This podcast is everywhere. Again, next week, there's something happening. Something um, that is uh, an interruption to the to the weekly programming. I'm excited to share that. So, again, I'm, again, this podcast is also on Patreon. So, if you want to support me, I really love your support. And again, I'm wishing you all well. This is a goodbye for now. And together, let's break the one-inch barrier. <laughs>